My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. the true history of this realm and growing amounts of evidence reveal complex and advanced cultures existing in the new world during the time of Atlantis. Being almost wiped out of history by cataclysm, it was all the more easy for the hidden hand to pull their dirty tricks, misdirecting curious minds further away from humanity's potentially lost ancient origins. And exposing this hidden hand is today's returning guest, Brad Olson, who's visited the seven known continents, cataloging the world's sacred sites in an excellent series of books available on his website. He joins me, Mystic Mark, here on this riveting episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Brad Olson. would that be a bigger prize than say the military headquarters or the radio tv stations or saddam hussein's palace why not just go right for the head of the snake no instead they land and go right to the museum and take that and create a perimeter and seal it off so i asked jayco what was it that was the prize there? Because sure, antiquities are great, but it's not like we were going to Iraq to drain their museum and put it here. There must have been something else. And he assured me, oh, indeed there was. And not sure if you're aware of this, but there have been several stargates discovered around the world, one of which I have a photograph of in Beyond Esoteric. It's the Stargate that was discovered in Egypt in 1898. Well, Saddam had his Stargate. And where was it located? In a cave below the museum. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are back again on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and I am very stoked to have this returning guest on. He is somebody who is instrumental in my awakening process, his modern esoteric, future esoteric, and beyond esoteric, the esoteric series. We're 
incredibly informative, and I'm glad I found them when I did about 10 years ago. And you know, six or seven years later, I have this gentleman on the show, and here we are again, round two. Brad, it's so cool to have you back. How have you been, and uh, what have you been up to? Hey, Mark, thanks for having me back. And wow, I'm impressed. Uh, I've made an impression on you, and you've done the show and so many episodes, and I'm really happy the way you've evolved your platform and audience and getting this word out there because a lot of our families think we're crazy, but we're not. We're just dot connectors and <laughs> those who can basically see the paradigm be behind the facade. Exactly. Uh, pulling the curtain away from the Wizard of Oz and seeing who's really running the show. Because uh, as the back cover of my book, Futuristic Terrorists, says, it's the alternative narrative. It's an entire narrative about everything we think we know on the world and then some that's been hidden away from us. So now in the Great Awakening, we find ourselves with accessibility to pretty much all the information that hadn't been destroyed, like say in the Library of Alexandria. And it's just a wonderful time to be a researcher and a truth teller and uh, someone who can put this mosaic together in a comprehensive way to help other people understand it, like your podcast and my book. So uh, it's Thank just you. our contribution to try to make this uh, an easy transition into this golden age, which I do think the human race has the potential of reaching. So yeah. I'm doing good, by the way. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you are. And I think it tends to work in a synchronistic way where, you know, in the same way I found your book, however I did, people find this podcast with this conversation with you on and find your books. And it kind of works in that reciprocal kind of way and hopefully fractals in an optimistic sense upwards so that more and more people engage with this information. And I wonder, you know, if you see it this way, but it almost felt like your book unlocked some keys, like it gave me some keys that unlocked some windows or doors in my mind to just different ways to think about the world. Um, did you have a similar experience before the books came together or you know, when you started compiling this information? Well, in my career, I did most of my seven of 10 books on travel related subjects, travel guides and anthology and some tour guides to extreme adventures and how to travel around the world. So I have an extensive travel, I basically a resume. Uh, I've been to all seven continents. Uh, five years ago, I was driving down South America to jump on a sailboat to Antarctica, rounding out the big seven. But now there's supposed to be an eighth continent, which is New Zealand and Oceania. I'm not sure I agree with that because it has to be a continental landmass, not a plate. But New Zealand is on its own plate called Oceania. So maybe after the next pole shift, it'll rise up and be a true continent in the <laughs> true state of the word. So to answer your question, I've just been very fortunate to have the opportunity to travel as much as I have and that gave me a great perspective on the world, its cultures, and different sides of the coin, basically. Eastern and Western are quite different in many ways, and in some ways, each gets it right and gets it wrong. And so I tried to compile that uh, as best I could in this esoteric series, taking an Eastern-Western perspective 
not necessarily just Western or Christian, but having the broad-based view of being able to travel around the world and reflect on many cultures and many people around the world. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it seems like the story can only be understood fully when we have the whole picture to look at and we can sort of uh, piece together the patterns and the directions that they lead. And I wonder, you know, as you're traveling, did you get a sense that there was an ancient culture that sort of pre predetermined all of these things, like a, uh, as some sources call this like race of master builders, right? The megalithic structures around the world. Did you get a sense that there that there's some truth to that? That there's some form, um, some similarities across all seven continents, maybe minus Antarctica. Oh, you'd be surprised. Even Antarctica has, and that would really be the kicker in all this. Because if we can determine that there had been a pre-Diluvian civilization on Antarctica, it just throws all the history we know of into a tizzy. And I do have some of that information, and I do presentations at conferences. One is called "The Hidden Anomalies of Antarctica." that I've been given ever since I got back four and a half years ago. And another one I've just created, which is a bit of an extension on that, is about the maps of the world during the age of exploration that show Antarctica. And this is not years, not decades, but centuries before it was officially discovered in 1820 by sealers and whalers who had read the account of Captain Cook who circumnavigated the Southern Ocean, but never sighted the continent. No modern mariner got down there until these merchant marines were, were hunting animals. And so Antarctica is truly one of the greatest enigmas on this planet. Uh, my experience was it's like no other place. You really don't even feel like you're on Earth because it's really a frozen continent. And of course, the animals are very peculiar, especially penguins, Drilling in the Southern Hemisphere, keep in mind, uh, and only walruses in the Arctic Ocean, big difference, and polar bears up there as well. So it was really the subtleties of seeing a lot of nature in all its glory and just having this great opportunity to reflect on all the places that I traveled to. So when I started as a travel writer, it was an excellent foundation to have a memory of these places because I did a series of books on sacred places. One of them was around the world. Another was North America. Another was Europe locations. I've traveled extensively mm. and to have that as well as photos that I took from the trips to include in these books was really advantageous. So, but when the internet came out <laughs> in the late 1990s, in early 2000, it really sent travel publishing into a downward spiral, really a death spiral, because if you can get any information on the world and really tailor your trip to even Antarctica based on what you can find on the internet, it's very hard to sell content. You can't compete with free. So I kind of went through this existential crisis. What do I want to do? Do I want to stay in publishing? Do I want to be continue being a writer? And it was yes to all three. And then I just asked myself, well, what 
what would people be willing to pay to own content? And I've always had the philosophy of the kind of books that I produce is what I would want to have on my own bookshelf and have as a quick reference. In fact, I still do quite frequently if I need to look something up because I do quite thoroughly research and reference anything that I put in these esoteric series of books because I want to make sure I get it right when it goes to print. And then I can always rely on it being uh, good and reliable information. Mm. So the esoteric series came out exactly 10 years ago and they've done very well. Future and Modern are both second editions. And then it took me six years to produce Beyond Esoteric. A couple of years ago, that came out. And it's been doing very well also. And I don't repeat my material, so it's all new information in each book. Yeah. Yeah, I love it, man. I really do. And I don't remember exactly when I got Beyond Esoteric, but I remember I have distinct memories of my first job out of high school. I was a Chinese food delivery guy. And I would read Modern Esoteric in between delivery shifts. And my boss, uh, Benny, who is a Chinese man, would say, Mark, you're dreaming. You're dreaming too much. He's like, you read too much, Mark. And I'm like, no, no, Benny, trust me. This is good information. Trust me. You know, And he always thought it was funny that I was reading my work shift. But I'm glad I did because now I'm doing a job that I love. And yeah, I, I think in many ways that, that's been inspired by this work you've done. Now, I do have a thought on Antarctica that I want to ask you about. Um, when it comes to animals, you mentioned the penguin and how walruses and polar bears aren't up, you know, they're not in Antarctica, right? Well, I think animals can teach us a lot about geography, culture, the world, and what we do have going on with Antarctica, maybe not now, but in the ancient past possibly, or maybe more recently when it was not covered in ice, uh, there definitely seems to be marsupials that traveled over this body of land at some point, because the only place we find marsupials in the world are Australia and some of the islands around Australia and South America and North America. So, you know, if these marsupials didn't walk across the land when all the plates were theoretically pushed together, because if they did, they'd be in Africa, Europe, and Asia as well, then they must have come over this sort of other way, unless, you know, I mean, who knows how animals get sent across the ocean if they could even survive a journey like that. But I like to think that there was this, you know, dry land that these animals could have crossed over, and that's why we have creatures like the possum and other marsupials uh, in North and South America and nowhere else on the planet aside from Australia. Well, that's right. And in my Antarctica presentation, I do show the land masses of Pangaea with animals and plants, flora and fauna, that is similar in the fossil record on several different continents. And the only way that could have been the case is if there was a transmigration possible between these land masses, either a land bridge or when the continents were all connected together. And just keep in mind that the whole science of plate tectonics is less than a century old. It was largely based on how Africa and South America fit together so perfectly. And right in the middle is the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And the other thing in my presentation, when I show the maps of Antarctica well before it was discovered, 
uh, most especially the Perry Reese map, which shows the coastlines very clearly less than 20 years after Columbus's first voyage. And it says in the liner notes that it was drawn from source maps dating all the way back to the Library of Alexandria. Wow. And then in this presentation, I also go into this builder race that you mentioned, the polygonal architecture and the megaliths around the world, which is truly remarkable. I think this is the smoking gun that there were antediluvian high-tech civilizations on this planet a long, long time ago. And the conclusion of that talk is a section on underwater archaeology. Now, how the heck do you build megalithic structures underwater? Virtually impossible. So this, again, is, is a smoking gun that there were high-tech civilizations on this planet, but the uh, standard narrative doesn't like to really admit anything earlier than Mesopotamia or Egypt. And they've even gotten the Egypt's dating all wrong it's much much older as well as is evident by the water markings on the side of the great sphinx on the giza plateau Mm. because the sahara desert area dr richard shock and graham hancock and john anthony west and others have been studying this very unusual phenomenon of flowing water and determining that because Egypt is so arid right now, there is no flowing water like that, that it must go all the way back to the time when the Sahara Desert was a verdant jungle and water was flowing in a more even and rapid fashion. Right. So little clues like that, Mark, just show that, uh, like Graham Hancock says, everything gets dated older and older and older and older. Mm. And now we're even talking about some artifacts that may even date millions of years on this planet well and this kind of leads me to a really interesting subject that i've had trouble finding the right people to talk about this with i think you're probably a a perfect candidate right (laughs) but some guests that i've had on the show they have trouble entertaining the idea that archaeologists would have some sort of conspiracy uh, and that archaeologists would hide or suppress information and I think it's pretty well accepted, you know, <laughs> that they have suppressed information and whether politically motivated or not, um, taken things and hid them. And it brings me to this idea that I've heard others, you know, sort of speculate on is what if the war zones of many of our modern wars have more to do with the ancient relics and ancient sites underneath the battlefield than they do the, you know, so-called what the news is telling us, right? I mean, Armenia is a great example of that. We have, you know, Mount Ararat there. We also have, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it isn't Globeki Tepe somewhere near Armenia or in a contested zone around there. Maybe it's technically in Turkey, Turkey. now. But near, close to Syria, and that's okay. a contested zone. Right, right, right. And I think... Maybe what made me think of Armenia was Mount Ararat, but in Bosnia as well, they have the pyramid, you know, mountain, and that's also a conflict zone. So I wonder, you know, is this something that is just a coincidence? I mean, you see it even down in South America with that mysterious war the United States got in on the island of Granada. And, you know, there's rumors that there were aliens flying around and giants on the island and you know, who really ever got an explanation but from the military on what they were fighting about in Granada? I don't know. No, that was a weird one for sure. But, uh, yeah, there are so many mysteries in the world. That's what 
esoteric means is a lot of this history and ancient knowledge and artifacts that have been kept away from us have really made this whole alternative narrative come to life and given us a lot more to look back on. Now, you mentioned a lot of the wars taking place quite possibly for artifacts. Well, I can tell you uh, in my capacity as a publisher, I have published Michael Jaco's two books. And in his first book, Intuitive Warrior, he was uh, stationed during the second Gulf War, the second invasion of Iraq. And he was also in Afghanistan quite a bit. And I asked him, about the second invasion during Junior Bush's era when they went into Baghdad, and this time they went all the way in. Remember, Papa Bush chickened out right before they came. They went into Baghdad and would have captured Saddam Hussein. They backed off for some strange reason. Well, they didn't do it under Junior Bush. Do you remember the very first building that our U.S. Special Forces took as soon as they got to Baghdad. It was, Do you remember that, Mark? I'm going to guess it was the National Museum or something similar to that. Yeah. You got it. It wow. was the Antiquities Museum. Now, why would that be a bigger prize than, say, the military headquarters or the radio TV stations or Saddam Hussein's palace? Why not just go right for the head of the snake? No, instead, they land and go right to the museum and take that and create a perimeter and seal it off. So I asked Jayco, what was it that was the prize there? Because sure, antiquities are great, but it's not like we were going to Iraq to drain their museum and put it here. There must have been something else. And he assured me, oh, indeed there was. And not sure if you're aware of this, but there have been several stargates discovered around the world, one of which I have a photograph of in Beyond Esoteric. Yeah. It's the stargate that was discovered in Egypt in 1898. Well, Saddam had his stargate. And where was it located? In a cave below the museum. The museum was built on top of this cave system where this old stargate was and Saddam was just getting ready to use it. And so with that kind of ability, an adversary against the United States poised a very big risk of being able to shift the timelines or put agents at different times in different places. Uh, There's a whole bunch of things you can do with this stargate technology. And so that was the real reason behind at least the second Gulf War. Of course, it was also to get the resources and oil and so forth. But this was the main objective with the capture of Baghdad. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And it definitely feels like there was occulted timing to that whole process. You mentioned Bush Sr. mysteriously halting, and then his son goes and proceeds for, forward. I wonder if there's some sort of mythical syncretic, syncretic kind of thing that they're following along where, you know, the father can't do it, but the son can. It seems like it follows a very allegorical, you know, line of thinking. But we know that both of the Bush 
presidents were in Skull and Bones, and uh, obviously they're not <laughs> unfamiliar with rituals being a part of something like that. As to what rituals is something I've been very curious about, you know, being a resident of Connecticut, someone who grew up near New Haven, I just found myself, you know, following up on all of these different uh, clues and, you know, other authors like um, Chris Milligan, who I've had on the show, and of course, uh, Anthony Sutton, who put out this is a great book on America's secret establishment, aka Skull and Bones. And although the political sides of all that are intriguing and obvious, you know, the robber baron class and the elitism of groups like that. But I can't help but wonder if there's occult sort of agendas at work, things that have been going on for thousands of years, uh, secret societal goals that are being met in this modern time. And maybe that's why there's this emphasis on things like stargates and artifacts and you know, it kind of leads me to wonder, you know, you mentioned Oceana, but what are your thoughts on America being the new Atlantis? I mean, people have speculated that Atlantis sunk into the Atlantic Ocean, the Sargasso Sea and the Bermuda Triangle certainly suggests something strange underneath the Atlantic. But do you think that there's any credit to that idea that at least the Mason founded this country, thought of it as like a new Atlantis or some sort of rebirth of that energy? Yeah, well, they did. Uh, Sir Francis Bacon wrote about it right when America was founded um, or discovered first by Columbus. And then we had the pilgrims come here in 1620 and England was creating their colonies and building this new Atlantis right across the Atlantic. And According to Plato, that was when, where the location of Atlantis was outside the Pillars of Hercules, which is Gibraltar. And indeed, in my underwater archaeology examinations, I found a pyramid that was discovered right off the Azores Islands. And that's pretty approximate to where Plato said that Atlantis would be. Also in our underwater archaeology are numerous sites in the Caribbean off of Bahama, Bimini Island, the Bimini Roads, megalithic road underneath the ocean. In uh, a newer find, only about 15 years ago, they found it off the coast of Cuba, um, near the wet southwestern tip of Cuba. They were scanning around looking for sunken shipwrecks and found what looks like a Mayan city but very deep underwater, I think about 1,800 feet, or quite deep. So that particular site was, it's in modern esoteric, there's a picture of it, and it has uh, the telltale sign of being construction. And again, how do you create megalithic structures below the surface of the earth? So clearly this had been on the surface when it was built, and then some kind of cataclysm, a pulse shift event sent it, sinking down to its current level. Right, right. And, you know, one of the things that I'm sure you've come across in your many travels across the world is this proliferation of the flood story. You know, I almost called it a myth there, but the amount of different groups around the world who have accounts of this great flood, you know, it definitely 
was used, I think, to prop up the more Christian-centric view of the world. But I think now we're starting to even find geological evidence of the this cataclysm that took place. And if the ocean level did, in fact, rise by even a couple miles or less, that would eliminate, you know, most of the people. I mean, think about today's world and how many cities and population groups center around the coastline or even rivers and bodies of water, you know, those are the first structures that would be submerged in some sort of great deluge, right? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, anytime you have sunken cities or even ruins that are very old, for example, right next to Tiwanaku is Pumapunku. And I got a chance to visit that site five years ago driving through South America and it's located three and a half miles from the current shoreline of Lake Titicaca. Yet it has docks and what look like piers made out of stone onto dry land. Why would you do that? Unless you need, you're once near the water and Puma Punku is like a Lego set that a kid just threw up in the air. It's scattered everywhere. And so, um, there's another example of cataclysm right? with very high-tech megalithic designs. Right, right. And Pumapunku, correct me if I'm wrong, but if is that the, unless I'm thinking of Olam Tembe, is that the site where you can like, you barely can slip a piece of paper between the stones? They're so well fit together. Or am I thinking of another site? Maybe well, that, that's really all over right. Peru and Bolivia. The megalithic structures all up and down the sacred valley, primarily in Peru, and then it extends out to Machu Picchu. But in that sacred valley, it is the highest concentration of megaliths anywhere in the world. Wow. And all of those sites are so expertly built that, like you say, you can't even stick a piece of paper or credit card or a paper clip in some of those seams. And then they have the most unusual designs. They curve and they right. reach points and they have uh, what make no sense to a modern builder, why they would create so many angles. Mm. There's a famous megalithic block in Cuzco called the stone of 12 angles, <laughs> 12 different angles. And it's sitting above other megaliths and fitted together expertly with other multi-angles. And that's what polygonal architecture is, the multi-angles. Turns out that's the best built. That one withstands earthquakes the best, and those are the oldest. Right, right. These simple square-shaped constructions are more likely to fall to something like earthquakes or even other disastrous activity like tsunamis and whatnot. Yeah, that's incredible to see some of them. And it what brings to mind it, when I see these structures so neatly constructed uh, is the vitrified forts in Europe, which maybe not as neat, a little bit more rudimentary, but they seem like they were blasted with some great force of energy. And maybe that's a part of the construction process to turn the stone into you know, some sort of crystal. Yeah, the vitrification, that's a really interesting point there because if we're to believe that early humans lived in a stone age, 
I remember the old saying that man's greatest discovery was fire and man's greatest invention was the wheel. Mm. Well, if all we had was fire in the Stone Age, there is no fire that can burn hot enough that could melt stone. And that's what vitrification is. And you find examples of vitrification all over the world. Turns out many of those sites where you find it happen to be either very old sites such as Egypt. I think it's a temple of uh, Dendor, perhaps Hathor. The stairways are literally melted, stairs out of rock, and you can even see the drip formations. And then there are castles, very old castles in Scotland that also show vitrification. And not only that, but there are also very ancient sites that have huge amount of radiation that was left after some kind of cataclysm. For example, in the Indus Valley of current-day Pakistan is the city of Mohanjandaro and Harappa, which are the Indus Valley culture. And in Mohanjandaro, when they are uncovering it, they were finding people just laying in the streets, very unusual. Usually you'd bury your dead. You don't just leave them laying face up in the street. Sometimes they're holding hands, just like in Pompeii, where it was just a flash volcano and the pyroclastic flow is what killed everybody and buried them in Pompeii. But in Mohajandero and Harappa, these bodies were found out in the open but with a high level of radiation still detected in their bodies with Geiger counters. And it also had the telltale sign of some kind of very hot flash, much, much hotter than you can make with a fire. So did the ancients or ancient civilizations have what we would know today as nuclear bombs and use it on each other? Well, it sure would appear that way. Right. Not only that, Mark, but there are big pockmarks that leave glass behind from very hot explosions from above, just as a nuclear explosion would do today. Wow. You can see the uh, landscape in the nuclear test zone just north of Las Vegas on Google Earth and just see these giant pockmarks from the nuclear test explosions, and many of them are vitrified sand turned to glass. In the desert right here. So we proved that is one way to create vitrification. Yeah. Yeah. Trinitite, I believe, is one of the minerals that's found in the Trinity Blast Site testing area. And they also have examples of this in Libya, which are likely much older and maybe from this time in Egypt when they had advanced technology. I mean, even the whole concept that you alluded to earlier about the water on the pyramids. I mean, tell us what you know about the Sahara Desert, right? I mean, is it true that it was once uh, as fertile as what we see in maybe like the lower parts of Africa with the Congo and the Serengeti? I mean, did it once look like that? Well, the some of the oldest petroglyphs in Africa are in Algeria, down in the Sahara, and they depict animals that live on the savanna of Africa today. So in the Sahara, there were giraffes, there were big cats, there were elephants. There were all the large mammals that we would associate with the more southern parts of Africa, because keep in mind the whole northern 
top of Africa is the Sahara Desert. But these petroglyphs show quite a different story. And th this is what I researched when I was working on sacred places around the world, because this would be one of the oldest art sites in the world when clearly the Sahara was a much different place. Now, you could make the argument that perhaps there was some kind of nuclear war exchange and those nuclear weapons either wiped out large expanses of area, turning it to desert, or changed the climate in such a way that the Sahara Desert started to expand. And it still grows to this day. Desertification is a very real problem in uh, those fringe countries in Central Africa where the Sahara is on the move. It grows every year rather than shrinks. So the, there's a big problem with the Sahara growing and taking over fertile land, grasslands for the animals as well. Right. right. And I'm not sure if it's the Bhagavad Gita or another book in the Upanishad somewhere, but they talk about these ancient battles, right? Where what seems to be, you know, weapons of mass destruction are being described in these, in, in this Vedic texts, right? Yeah. Big lot of descriptions in the Bhagavad Gita, as well as flying craft, the Amanas, right. the UFOs of ancient India. And that's very close to where the Indus Valley was, which um, some people who research Lemuria place Lemuria in the Indian Ocean. And that's actually where the name comes from, lemurs, which only live on the island of Madagascar off of Africa. But the lemurs gave rise to the name Lemuria. I would also propose another continent in the Pacific that is also collapsed into the ocean. And there is megalithic architecture there that can be found as well. Now, whether that was Lemuria or perhaps even older Hyperborea, it does appear that there was a war that took place with Atlantis, which is more of the northern Africa, the European center and out in the Atlantic versus the Indian region and a lost continent that did go down south of India mm. with quite a bit of evidence that there was a whole civilization. I show an area off of Gujarat in India that they've been finding perfectly symmetrical roads and building foundations and all the telltale signs that there is a sunken, submerged civilization off the coast of India as well. Wow. Wow. And yeah, there's uh, tons of interesting stuff in the Polynesia Oceana region as well. I recently was reading a book about the Solomon Islands, and they have everything from giants on the island that kind of are similar to Sasquatch in some ways, maybe more human than our typical Sasquatch description. They even have, you know, the UFO encounters and whatnot. But I wonder, you know, given that the ocean level's risen, you know, the islands that exist today would have been like the highlands of that uh, ocean territory, right? I mean, mountains are inherently a spiritual and mystical place, and that's all that's left in some of those regions where the ocean level is risen. But uh, 
in your travels, did you come across any artifacts or megaliths in that region that seem to suggest uh, Lemuria? Because there is an author named Carol Nervig who put out a book recently, and she calls it the Island of Moo. And um, I don't know that it's altogether similar to Lemuria. It sounds a lot more like what you're describing as Oceana, because she, she finds all these connections between, you know, the cultures of the Polynesians with the cultures of South America and, and even some tribes on the West Coast of America. Oh, yes, there's quite a bit of evidence of a sunken continent in the Pacific as well. And I agree, that would be better named as Moo. There was a British officer named Churchwood who collected a lot of information on Moo, and he put out his book on it. And then there's also uh, the city called Nan Madal in Micronesia, which is when it was discovered by Europeans during the Age of Discovery. It's called the Venice of the Pacific, and it has all these canals and basically these giant basalt rock kind of like Lincoln logs that are built upon these artificial islands and not at all. So that's one example. And there is underwater archaeology there. Another is Malden Island, where it has roadways, megalithic roadways that just peter out right into the water and just keep going. Um, but I think the best one is the most recently discovered Yonaguni off of the uh, southern most island in the Okinawa chain. It's governed by Japan, and it's the island of Yonaguni, and it was just discovered about 15 years ago by an abalone hunter just swimming around the island and seeing this megalithic structure carved right out of the living rock that for the longest time no standard archaeologist or even National Geographic would recognize but when you see how perfectly symmetrical it is with steps and platforms carved right out of it, even National Geographic has now had to admit that it was fashioned by some higher intelligence and must have been done during the last ice age when ocean levels were much lower. Right, right. Yeah, and I mean, really along every coast, I'm sure there's just dozens of things that are still waiting to be found. I read recently off the coast of Brazil, they found some uh, giant Roman vases that would have been used to store grain or oil in the height of the Roman Empire period. And yeah, off the coast of Brazil and this archaeologist who presented it to some officials in Brazil in the state or government capacity they just kind of said, oh, yeah, don't worry about that. That's not important. And then next day he goes, you know, or the next time he goes to look at the site and the military had covered it all with silt. And wow. And then when he went and confronted the government officials, they said, well, people in Brazil don't care about their history. We're happy with we're happy with the European discovery. We don't need to push it back any further. And I'm like. What kind of explanation is that, you know, the good, the gall of some people, you know, and I'm sure politics and whatnot are much different in South America. You know, I, I wouldn't imagine people in America saying that, but who knows? I mean, they, they did dispose of all those giant skeletons pretty neatly. Uh, 
in the 19th century here. So, yeah, it's oh, and in the 20th, <laughs> right? That's called Smithsonian Gate in this country, right? And that is concerted cover up efforts to deny our true prehistory on North American continent. That also includes giants and various funerary artifacts buried with and associated with the giants, as well as our own megaliths and some of the mound sites through North America, very, very old. And some of those mound sites were burial mounds where they found these giants, really big guys, uh, 10, 12, 14 footers. And the older they were, the bigger they were, but then they would sometimes have double rows of teeth and six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. So human-like, but not human. Right. And the fact that some of them, including right out here where I'm at, northwestern Nevada, where it was this culture during the last ice age that lived in a, a lake that encompassed most of northwestern Nevada called Lake Lahutten. And all around the high-level watermarks where there are caves, they found these giants. And not only are they these real big boys, but they were cannibals. And they were always at odds with the Native Americans and would even eat them if they captured them. So after the Paiute Indians had gained many more numbers than the giants, they finally had a big confrontation at a location called the Lovelock Cave. And I've been out there. I feature it in my book, Sacred Places North America, where they found mummified giants with size 18 woven sandals. They created objects that were so unique to them that they've had to name them the Lovelock culture after these artifacts that were found with the giants in a funerary capacity. So anytime you have a race of people that bury their dead with funerary objects, that is a very good indication that you're dealing with a sophisticated culture mm. that has a knowledge of life and death and the afterlife, like the Egyptians, leaving them items that they could use and take with them to the afterlife and showing us exactly what they could create. And in the case of the Lovelock culture, they would create duck decoys out of this tule, um fibrous material that would grow along the lake, kind of like cattails. And so they would make boats out of it, and they would make these artifacts or sandals, and were a very highly sophisticated culture, but were at odds with the Paiute Indians, who finally got them backed into the Lovelock Cave and created an avalanche so they couldn't escape. And then they kept burning fires to smoke them out and starve them of oxygen and eventually did kill them all. And this is all accounted in a book called My Life Among the Paiutes by Sarah Winnemucca. And there's a city in the center of Nevada called Winnemucca named after her family. And in her book, Written in the 19th century, based on oral tradition, she recounts how the Paiute Indians confronted and killed all the last of the giants in Nevada. Yeah. 
So that's kind of my little corner of history <laughs> here in the United States. I know you do a series on that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's fascinating. I'm kind of shocked to hear that the Giants' feet were so small. I wear a size 18 shoe. That's probably alarming oh. to a lot of people, but I am almost seven feet tall. So maybe I would have been a shorter Giant back in those times. I would have been careful not to get too close to that tribe they would have mistook me for a giant but no yeah, well, i'm a big guy too just one row of teeth a couple of inches but i got size 13 feet okay. it could be i think they found some that were bigger than that too i imagine uh, so I, yeah yeah i tried to defer towards a smaller size so people don't jump on me and they exaggerated <laughs> well if anything i kind of exaggerated on the low side just to be sure that some of that information yeah, the, but the sizes were, they were at least seven, eight, nine, and I think some were up to 12 feet tall. Wow. There's another location close to where I'm at called Spirit Cave, and there too they found the remains of mummified giants as well. But like you said, with the Brazil, the authorities will come in, namely the Smithsonian Institute uh, in Washington, D.C., and I have uh, several uh a lot of information about the giants and the elongated skulls, including a dig that was being done at Lake Delavan, uh, very close to where I grew up in northwestern Illinois. And they were digging up these giant remains. Some professors from Beloit College in southern Wisconsin doing everything by the book, a professional dig. This is about 110 years ago, so around the turn of the century. And word started getting out first in the local newspaper, got picked up by the state newspaper and the regionals. Then the national paper started picking up giants found at Lake Delavan in southern Wisconsin. And while they were halfway through the dig, Smithsonian Institute shows up, kind of like the FBI showing their badge. Well, we're senior here on the scene. We'll take over this. And the archaeologist said, hey, we're very invested in this dig. We want to continue and finish it up. They said, no, no, we'll take it over. And they said, well, we want to know what the results are here. And Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll tell you. So uh, a couple months go by. They take all the remains out of there. The archaeologists call up the Smithsonian and say, hey, that dig get Delavan Lake, what were the results? Sir, we don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> there was no dig at Delavan Lake. Totally denied it. Right. Totally covered it up. The story is they just dumped all those bones in the Atlantic Ocean, just out of sight, out of mind. Right. Wow. It almost feels like the folks at the actual Smithsonian Institute are just the dimwits that aren't informed that there's like a secret you know, hierarchy above them, this black ops archaeologist team that goes around and secrets away all these sites. And then you give a call to the Smithsonian. They're like, oh, we just have a bunch of maps and books. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. Well, and it, again, it seems like there's this political overtone with a lot of this stuff. And I wonder if that goes back to you know, Francis Bacon and some of these folks that designed the plans for America and the other countries in the so-called new world, 
And, you know, even if that term new world was, you know, sort of, you know, in a sort of duplicitous way put in there so that people had this notion that, oh, yeah, this is the newest place on earth. People just got here. Meanwhile, the, you know, the tribes and whatnot, oh, don't worry about them. They're not important. You know, nothing happened before they got here and they just walked over the land bridge. So nothing more to say about that case close. Meanwhile... I can attest to this firsthand. There are stone structures and megaliths here around New England that, you know, don't really get it explained much. And when you look into the Native American myths and legends, they have all sorts of stories about them. And a lot of them say that the giants put the structures together, right? So they're not taking credit for these structures. They're saying, oh, no, these other groups of beings put them together. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just fascinating. There's one mountain near where I grew up called Sleeping Giant. And the Native American legend is that this was a real being that, you know, was attacked by a thunderbird, hit with lightning in this great flood and fell and became this mountain. So when you look at, and when you look at the mountain, I mean, it looks like a man lying on his back as much as a mountain could look like that. But uh, obviously with trees and erosion, maybe it looked more like a man at one point, but it definitely adds this layer to, you know, what we can find out there that I think is inherently human. You know, nowadays science kind of sterilized things, but in the past people had a richer way of, uh, you know, seeing the world. Just look at the maps they used to create with all the, you know, little creatures here and there all over the map. You know, it seems like that was at one point acknowledged like, oh yeah, there are monsters in these realms that we haven't traversed yet, you know, but they knew they were out there. Yeah, especially in the oceans. I love looking at those old maps Mm. and seeing the sea monsters and sea creatures that were vexing all those seafarers back in the age of exploration. Right. It's great. (laughs) Now, oftentimes people who are maybe approaching this from a more Christian-centric perspective, they'll say, oh, well, the giants are the Nephilim, right? Uh, Do you lend any credit to that notion? Have you found any, you know, evidence that there might be something Mesopotamian or maybe connecting these creatures to that old world? The creatures might not be the right way to put them, but these giants, right? Is there any, are they... Are there any artifacts that have been found alongside them that would indicate that they're from the old world or maybe this biblical time period in some way? Well, if we can make the assumption that the elongated skulls could be the hybrids, the Nephilim, because hmm. remember the Anunnaki were the ones that came down and they saw that women were fair and they made it with them. That was written about in the Bible. While not claiming to be a Bible scholar by any means, I have studied cultures around the world. I'll tell you that they often have the same stories of giant cataclysms on the earth, the flood stories of giants existing those days before, and of these these lords. Isn't it interesting how we hear that word so many times, the landlord, Mm. or House of Lords in England, and the Lord above, you're all these lords that are controlling humans in all these different ways. And that's the way our civilization in the West is created. Just like the the kings and queens of Europe 
they would always say we have the divine right to rule, that it's their bloodline that is different, and therefore they are uh, subject to different rules and laws because they are the lords. They're the ones who basically rule over the commoners, and they were divinely anointed to that role. So we kind of have inherited a system that really uh, favors excuse me, those in control. And uh, that's um, pretty evident in the words we use in all this stuff too. But so I think in the elongated, there's that sneeze, the elongated skulls, uh, and I do a whole talk, I'll be at the Conscious Life Expo in LA in February, and they asked me to do my talk on the giants. You might have to come out for that one. We're almost the same height. I'll introduce you. You can come on up with me and say a few words. I'd love to. All right. It's that special time in the show where we take a quick break for our ads brought to you by whatever your phone cookies, VPN, or whatever you're using on your phone determines is right for you. I have no control over what you're about to hear. Of course, if you want an ad-free experience, you can sign up for as little as $5 today on Patreon or $8 on Substack and get the entire uh, catalog of episodes plus bonus content today, ad-free. If not, stick around for these ads and conversation will be right back after that yeah i mean one of the one of the interesting things is like yeah i I think that uh um, that plays a factor maybe in the small sense that uh Yeah, I've always been different. I'm sure you can relate as a tall person. Like I've always been taller than most people. And that maybe gave me a propensity to look into things that were a little bit odd or strange because that's how I always felt, you know, but bringing it back to North America, I really love in your Sacred Places of North America book, this pre-Columbus voyage map that it does a really good job of kind of uh, as you know, maps usually do, kind of showing you the region as it would be known to the people from Europe traveling. And you have Celtic, Viking, Phoenician kind of uh, symbols here to show where these artifacts have been found. But I'm familiar with the Kensington Stone. I want to ask you about that. One I'm not so familiar with, I know I've heard of it before, but I'd like to ask you about it is the Wabanasi Stone. Um, because that yeah. that's from your home state there, right? In Illinois. Um, that's right. What's interesting about this Wabanasi stone? Yeah, the Wabanzi stone. Okay. That's a good one because it's the only thing like it anywhere in the world are these other Wabanzi stone-like carvings in ancient Phoenicia. That would be what is today Lebanon or Libya the Carthaginians were basically pagan and they were traders, not just in the Mediterranean, but really, I would argue, a global network. And they knew the source of a very rich vein of copper. 
and it happens to be the richest vein in the world. And there's still many copper mines in this area. And there are also prehistoric pit mines with some of the implements, the hammers and chisels to cut out the copper. It still go there today. This is the upper peninsula of Michigan. And in that area, um, if you knew where you were going, let's say you and me and a dozen of our buddies were leaving the Mediterranean and we had a good captain that says, hey, come on, guys, help me with this cargo. We'll come back in three years and we'll all be millionaires and the money of that time. We might do it because if we survived and got our cut of the cargo, you'd be very wealthy. Because remember, in the time of Homer, he was in the Bronze Age, before the Iron Age. And that is the art of smeltering tin and copper. So copper was pretty much worth its weight in gold. It was a very valuable alloy because it could be used for bronze, the main ingredient. So they had to have a source of bronze. And because the Phoenicians were very secretive, they didn't tell anybody where they were going. But I retraced their steps. And being a Midwesterner, I got out and drove out there and <clears throat> checked it all out. So basically, if you knew where you were going and you could find your way across the Atlantic in what were known as the stepping stones, and there are islands only a couple days away from northern Scotland, you have the Orkney Island, uh, the Faroe Islands, um, then you get close to, you can land at Iceland, and then you go over to Greenland, and then Greenland to the Labrador coast, you follow the Labrador current which would take you all the way down to North Carolina if you let it. That's why I'm sure the Vikings made their incursions well deep into America too, including the Kensington Roomstone you just mentioned. Uh, but the St. Lawrence Seaway is your way to get to Lake Ontario. Well, there's one big obstacle to get you to the rest of the Great Lakes that you can't get over in a boat. You know what that is? Isn't that right where Detroit is or maybe up upstream further where? Between Erie and Ontario. Okay, right. Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. It's where a lot of the honeymooners go. Well, you used to go there after they got married. Okay. In New York, between New York and Canada, that's Niagara Falls. Right. You can't get a boat over Niagara Falls, but they do have waterways that include dikes, and dams and levees that they raise and lower the water. It's called the Trent Severn Waterway that can take boats to this modern day mm. from Lake Ontario to Lake Huron. <clears throat> now, they didn't have those waterways in the time of the Phoenicians, <clears throat> but if we had an empty boat and 30 of us with ropes and heave-ho, you can get up the Niagara Escarpment and then down into Lake Huron. Once you're in Lake Huron and Lake Michigan are exactly the same uh, altitude. Water seeks its own level. So the city of Chicago and Detroit are at exactly the same altitude because they're both right on the lake. But Lake Superior is a little bit higher 
there is a way to get through. It's uh, the St. Marie. There's some rapids there, but you could get a boat through, especially um, going up water with an empty boat. Then they would summer and winter and summer again, just mining copper, filling up their cargo hold. Then they would be very heavily laden. Then you're very vulnerable when you have a heavy boat like that. But up there in the north, there wasn't too many natives. Uh, the real challenge was once they got through to uh, the Chicago River, and that's where the Wabanzi stone was found, and it was a Tophet stone. That means it was a uh, sacrificial altar. It's the oldest relic of Chicago. It was in Fort Dearborn in the parade grounds. And since nobody had an explanation, somebody just said, oh, that was a a carving of a foot soldier who apparently had a lot of time on his hands to carve the portrait of Chief Wabanzi. But it doesn't look anything like a Native American at all. In fact, it has a long goatee beard, just like the Phoenicians wore. Wow. And a big cavity in the top of its head where you could fit an infant for an infant sacrifice. And the blood would come out its mouth through these pursed lips and then into a cup where the long beard is similar to the way a pharaoh was portrayed with those long chin beards. And then the blood would drop into the Chicago River and then they would be blessed for a voyage to go through the river system very close to where I grew up. So I was on one episode, America Unearthed, with Scott Walter, and we met near the South Branch to the Chicago River in a suburb of Chicago called Lyons. And there is the the Portage Park where you could portage a heavily laden boat in the springtime through this area that we walked around, Scott Walter, on the show called Mud Lake. And getting through from the lake, South Branch, Chicago River, through Mud Lake, then you could get to the Des Plaines River, which feeds into the Illinois River, which feeds into the Mississippi, and then down you go right to the Gulf of Mexico. Right. So on the episode, we had Wayne May come on. He was the publisher of Archaeology Digest. I've contributed some articles to that. And he said that there was another Wabanzi stone found up near St. Augustine, Florida. And that would have been the last point that they would have to fill up all their water, get all their supplies, and then follow the Gulf Stream right on over back to the Mediterranean. Wow. And anybody that survived that voyage would be a very wealthy person. So there was definitely the financial motivation for men to take such a risky voyage. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. And I, as you were retelling that, I did remember, I've asked you about that the last time you're on the show, how could I forget something like, uh, you know, a sacrificial uh, stone for something so brutal, but we do know that children uh, were, you know, considered this, they played this role in Phoenician culture, whether or not those children were their own or not. I find that hard to believe. Like, why would they bring a kid along with them? They probably have kidnapped that child along their way. They traded with the Native Americans. Right, right. Well, and there are stories from the Native Americans of interacting with 
not quite giants, but tall, white, red-haired men who ha- had the appearance of giants in some ways, but not quite what we see found in the mounds. Now, that kind of leads me to ask you about Spruce Hill, which I see also on the map. Spruce Hill, I've learned, was kind of interesting because either Spruce Hill or areas around Spruce Hill have these what look like mounds that had forges inside of them for metallurgy, right? So this is where they would have processed the ore that they would have mined and maybe refined it to make it lighter before they took it on their journey, right? I mean, is that a part of, you know, because typically when we hear about mounds, we think of them as burial mounds or having some sort of spiritual astronomical purpose, but very rarely do we hear the utilitarian aspect of these sites. And I think that's kind of interesting that there was this whole industry going on, especially when you consider that when the Native Americans were contacted by Europeans, they didn't seem to have much metal with them. And I wonder if that's maybe something that's been left out of records or if there is some evidence that shows that they did have metal but yeah clearly there were forges here so who was using them (laughs) yeah clearly and and that's the fort ancient culture and there's another one that got swept under the rug and out of sight out of mind don't look over here look over there And, and that's why that is such an important site spruce hill in ohio because they did find the furnaces. And that really uh, upsets the apple cart because now you have native people, whether they're European, influenced by European or strictly natives, who understood the art of smelting. And that is cooking a fire hot enough to melt ore and combine it to create a stronger metal. That's what bronze is made from copper and tin. And then iron is even stronger than that. Now, so excuse me with my lack of metallurgy, but I have recently, I found this book from the 15th century conquistador travels or 16th century. And there was some art in there showing uh, metallurgy going on in the Mayan culture, but they were melting gold. Is there a difference when you make it to, you know, work with gold and then maybe is bronze a more advanced technique? Like, because uh, it does seem like that at least the Central American and Southern American cultures could do things with gold and possibly other metals. Well, they shaped gold, right? but metallurgy is melting and then combining two different metals to create a new alloy, such as bronze or brass or iron or steel. Gold is just gold. It's on the periodic table of elements. It's its own uh, entity, but it's very soft. It's beautiful. It never rusts. uh, There's only one acid that can make it disappear, which can erode it. Um, So it's always been considered a very valuable metal and was used by kings and queens like King Tutankhamun had a whole pure gold faceplate on his burial. So it's been around for thousands of years and very coveted. In my chapter Beyond Esoteric, I go a little bit further with gold and silver and show, uh, well, colloidal silver has many healing properties, but monatomic gold may have been the mana of old that was ingested 
in such a way that it could take the the person using it into out of body experiences. Wow! I was on the Forbidden Archaeology panel this year at Contact in the Desert. On one side of me is Graham Hancock, whose new series Ancient Apocalypse just came out, and Linda Bolton Howe over there, and then uh, Ian Newman and you know, Who's Who Ian Collins. Yeah, Who's Who, and here's me in the middle. Of, uh, I think I better have some good answers. And there, Johnny Enoch was the moderator. We were talking about the Great Pyramid. And I reminded the audience that in the Great Pyramid, when the first 19th century archaeologist came there, a man named Howard Weiss, he found this white powder right in the king's chamber at the sarcophagus that's in there. And he had the presence of mind to collect it and put it in a sample that made its way back to the British Museum. And then many decades later, somebody finally uh, took the time to do an, an analysis and found that it was the residue that comes out of uh, perspiration when somebody is doing monatomic gold. So that's probably what the King's Chamber in the Great Pyramid was used for, is an initiation chamber combined with the use of monatomic gold. And there it was, right in this residue sample that Howard Weiss took from the uh, King's Chamber. And then other people on the panel, I know Newman said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. They found that there. So more mystery of the Great Pyramids, which the pyramids, of course, are known to focus energy through and up and above. And, of course, the King's Chamber is right there in the middle. Well, and I don't remember how this quite came up on the show recently, but the Ark of the Covenant, I was told, once sat in the Great Pyramid and worked as a sort of, you know, a piece of this greater device that is the pyramid, maybe, you know, capacitor or something. I'm not an engineer, clearly, but I have had other guests on the show tell me that the pyramids have a great deal of chemical residue that one gentleman explained as possibly uh, indicating that there were geopolymers being created at the Great Pyramid site. And there might have even been some sort of hydraulic action going on where the pyramid acted like a pump in this greater machine that was the whole city structure. It's a ram pump and it's also been um, recreated to work because there's that a uh, chamber that air duct that goes kind of like between a zigzag the gallery down to the queen's chamber. And then it goes down to the subterranean chamber. Mm. And so, and there are doors that are found. So when the water level goes up, it can hold the water and then it creates a suction a vacuum. And then when the water releases, it can push it up higher. So I've seen diagrams and it's very plausible that they were able to float all the blocks to build the Great Pyramid up a ramp that went around and around, float them on logs in water, in canals, using this ramp pump to fill the water, to take them all the way up. Wow. Then when they got to the top, they put the capstone on, then the finishing stone, and then just deconstructed the channels on the way down. Right. That's it. Right. And Another thing that came up is that finishing stone was all white and the gold cap on top 
it created this incredible effect at noon when the sun was directly over the pyramid. It looked like, you know, sort of light beam shooting up towards the sky, towards the sun. And as someone who's visited the pyramids, is there any remnants of that outer layer of the pyramid left at all anywhere, or has it been completely lost to time? No, it is. I've been to Egypt. So below the sands, when they excavated out all the sand, they found casing stones at the very bottom of the pyramid. And you can touch them. And again, like those megaliths in Peru, they're so tightly constructed, you can't put a piece of paper on them. Right. And then on the second pyramid, the very top of it, uh, although weathered, there is still the original casing stones up on that pyramid as well. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. And I wonder, you know, if the pyramid itself wasn't, you know, one of these like multi-purpose ultimate kind of creations where, you know, it has a thought put into every facet of it. I mean, you could go and analyze all the different aspects of the pyramid. One thing that comes to mind is how it itself on its in its position on the earth it expresses this geometrical relationship with all of the land mass of the earth so i think it's at the exact central point of all the land mass of the earth which is That's right. amazing how if these were just you know <laughs> rudimentary people less advanced than us how would they have even calculated something like that right i mean if the so-called new world wasn't mapped out yet then how would they have calculated that right i mean it, it's just stupendous clearly that there was time when the whole world was known and yeah maybe catastrophe cataclysms have split the continents further apart and it wasn't so much this slow burn plate tectonic shift. Maybe it was this rapid shift. And nowadays, I mean, people entertain this idea that um, there was a very recent old world culture that was completely written out of history. And as someone who's traveled as extensively as you have, I wonder, you know, what thoughts do you have towards like the topic Tartaria, I don't know how familiar you might be with it, but you know, a lot of people are making claims like, and I tend to be very skeptical of them, that there were complete structures like the Parthenon in Nashville here in America prior to the settlement of Europeans. And, you know, a lot of that runs the, the fantastical spectrum, in my opinion, but we do have things like the Newport Tower uh, and other constructions that I don't know, maybe that uh, fit into this real story that's being you know, overshadowed by this new wave of uh, sensationalism. Uh, what are your thoughts on the whole Tartaria old world concept? Well, there certainly were very old, very advanced civilizations. I don't buy the notion that America had all these very advanced buildings, especially associated with the World's Fair, that weren't there before. And the reason I could say this with confidence is that in my study of maps, I love checking out maps of what an area looked like before it became a city. For example, Manhattan. There's a great map of the whole island that was commissioned during the Revolutionary War that just shows a couple settlements and all the natural features on it. 
Similarly, in San Francisco, where I lived a number of years, uh, it too had really amazing natural features. The first mariners that would come through there would see grizzly bears at Fort Point. Wow, this is a wild country. But in no case were they talking about ancient ruins. Right. And where they say the ancient ruins were is where they built the World Fair. And look, in the 19th century, before television or radio or movies, if you were a well-to-do person, you would take a trip to these other cities to go to the World's Fair, and they would go on for weeks. Where I grew up in Chicago, they did the World's Fair where the Museum of Science and Industry is. It still is. It's a remnant. It's a building that's still there, just like in San Francisco, the Palace of Fine Arts. But it was built out of basically paper mache and chicken wire, They were only built for display. Mm. But in the case of the Palace of Fine Arts, it was such a beautiful building and people liked it so much that um, they rebuilt it to be a permanent structure. But it was never there. It's not on any of the maps, nor are any of these buildings. Now, I know people are saying that some of this comes from Russia, which is the ancient Tatar area. I knew a guy once. Uh, in San Francisco, he was a Tatar. Uh, and my Russian friend says, hey, G- you know, Yorge is a Tatar. They were the rulers of um, of Asia at one point. They're the warrior class. And I said, oh, wow. And I talked to him about it. And he, being a Tatar, he said, no, there was no none of those buildings. It's just, those are old photos. Yeah, they would burn down sometimes. They'd get torn down and Look, uh, New York City had this incredible train station called Penn Station that they just tore down because they needed to make room for new buildings. Right. So buildings do get torn down, and they were very ornate and very well constructed in the 18th to 19th century, made out of this uh, neoclassical Greco-Roman style. That was the uh, design of choice right. in those centuries. And many of those buildings still survive. Well, and... I'm so glad to have your perspective on to answer that because, you know, it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart as someone from New England, a place with 400 years of history. I hear the notion that, oh, 200 years ago, there was this big advanced civilization here. And I'm like, well, my town's 400 years old and I can tell you the oldest building in town isn't that advanced. I mean, it looks like what they were building at that time, which is you know, rudimentary stonework, brickwork, and wood that didn't last, right? So, yeah, I appreciate the clarity on that. And, you know, nonetheless, fascinating topic to to speculate on. But I think, in a way, it could be a layer of propaganda that we're seeing in this TikTok generation of short attention span media, uh, a way of of throwing people off the right trail to understanding our accurate prehistory, our lost history of America. And I think, again, it has this political overtone because they don't want to acknowledge the Celtic, Viking, Phoenician, even, you know, uh, Libyan. And, you know, my friend, uh, Dr. Narco Longo down there in Florida, he's found tons of interesting stuff stuff connecting to, you know, all of these really strange groups that were in Florida previous to the, you know, acknowledged colonization. But as far as, you know, structures go, yeah, the the structures in America seem to be very old, not recent, right? And when it comes to the calendar 
chambers and the kind of dolmens up here in New England, I mean, they really resemble what we see in Northern Europe and and Russia and, you know, even mainland Europe and the the UK, right? So what can you say about these structures? I mean, what are your thoughts on them? Yeah, and the best ones are the beehive stone chambers in New England. And I visited and covered them in my book, Sacred Places North America, as well as in Sacred Places Europe, because the, the best facsimile of a mortar-free megalithic capstone, but fitted stones creating a beehive under that megalith, you find those in Ireland, you find those in Britain, you find those in Greece, and you also find them in New England, and they're almost identical, very well-constructed. The best one is Upton Stone Chamber in Massachusetts, which they just finally made a city park. Wow. Five years ago, I was out there again. The first time I was there, um, I knew it was on Elm Street in the town of Upton, and I'm looking around, and it's just this neighborhood with these big houses. Down the street were some kids. I said, hey, uh, you guys know where the Upton Stone Chamber is? They go, oh, you mean the cave? I go, Yeah. I know it's around here somewhere. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can go through and go down there and you'll find it there. Sure enough, there it was. And they called the cave and I go in there and it's in the summer. So it was flooded and I just took my shoes off to go in there because I had to see it. And you could stand up fully. It's about eight or nine feet tall in the middle. But of course, you got to hunch down to get in there. So I'm going through there. There's a long chamber and there's a tire in there, and I'm pulling it out, taking the garbage out, beer cans. Kids were partying in there. It just broke my heart to see an ancient site that was misidentified and just being trashed as a party spot. Yeah. But the Upton Stone Chamber has archaeoastronomy alignments, and there's a hill across the valley in Upton, and up on that hill are these big rock carns. Now they're just piles of rock, but at one time they were holding posts and Upton Stone Chamber, sure enough, has an alignment right there with the solstice. So it was a timekeeping device too. again, demonstrating a very high sophistication in the builders to know the movement and alignment of the solar systems. Right. And just because it doesn't fit within that accepted paradigm, they don't get acknowledged. And that's sad. I mean, there's plenty of them in Connecticut that I've come across uh, through my research. None that I've visited other than Gunjiwamp. And uh, that Gunjiwamp too. That's amazing. Yeah, it's incredible stuff. I mean, the size of these stones are massive. I mean, it almost makes you wonder if they had like Coral Castle technology to build them, you know, because it, it... Unless they were incredibly strong, I couldn't imagine a modern person doing that alone. But hey, you know, power in numbers. But either way, it just it's this gap in American history and I think has a, a political connection. I wonder, you know, what your thoughts are, because in modern esoteric, you write about the Freemasons and secret societies. And in my research of Skull and Bones, I found one odd picture where... They kind of had the four prominent secret societies of Yale illustrated in this kind of 19th century illustration. And they had these symbols. They had a bat. They had a man blindfolded. They had maybe a plant. I don't remember what kind. Then they had a symbol that 
I think most people have explained as a beehive, but to me it looked like a stone chamber. And I'm wondering, like, hmm, maybe this is an indication that there were groups that came to America and worked on uh, covering this kind of stuff up, maybe precursors to the Smithsonian Institute. One one person I spoke to thinks that it might have been the Order of Cincinnatus, the Society of Cincinnatus that went around and did this because they have a propensity to build monuments on top of mounds. But it does seem like it's kind of this uh, ignored purposefully kind of history. Well, it is because it changes the historical record Mm. of who were the first people here. So that upsets Native Americans. They don't like to admit the giants were here, red-haired enemies that lived all across uh, the continent, uh, and many of them being white-skinned. Remember when they discovered the Kennewick Man in Washington State right along the Columbia River Gorge? He was so well-preserved. At first, they thought it was a murder scene or a recent death. Turns out the guy was many thousands years old, but Caucasian. And that was a big problem. And so the Native Americans have this act that they can repatriate the ruins of any Native American. So they actually got possession of the Kennewick man and then reburied it, which could have been one of the greatest lines to tell our true history of cross uh, multicultures coming to America. This is what's known as cultural diffusion. And that's many different groups over a long period of time interacting with leaving behind loan words or building techniques or even smelters uh, and the Native American people running with it. But the time of our founding, they were finding whole tribes of Indians they called the white Indians at all these different locations, including uh, the Lewis and Clark expedition and the Mandan who around present day Nebraska was this white tribe of Indians. And Thomas Jefferson told uh, Meriwether Lewis to look into the Mandans, and they said they're a Welsh-speaking tribe, and Welsh being Wales and the British Isles. And this might have been what got Lewis murdered, because just three years after he came back, others say suicide, but how do you put two one shot in your chest and then blow your brains out, it appears that he was going to blow the whistle on the Mandan, well-speaking white Indians. And this is how back and how entrenched preserving the narrative goes. Yeah, And this Sonian Gate's all about, and this is why the stone chambers in New England, very few people even know they exist. Right, And here they are with all the telltale signs of being built by Europeans. Yeah, wow. It has this, you know, really interesting dimension to it. And I wonder if, you know, in Wales, they didn't have stories about, you know, people going off and never returning. I mean, there was the whole royal, the royal prince, I forget his name, who came out to the New World and had this whole saga of travel and treasure hunting or finding that kind of follows him, right? Because he left some things behind. Well, you know the details of what I'm talking about, right? Well, St. Bernard and the Chaldee monks of Ireland came across in these round boats. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, 
archaeologists or historians would say, oh, no, the oceans are barriers. You can't cross them in these little round Kaldi monk boats with a small sail and oars. But people did. Right. And people have recreated Viking ships and done it. I remember reading as a kid that some guy crossed the Atlantic in a bathtub and an oar. <laughs> and then a 12-year-old boy was able to solo in a sailboat. Wow. Because you just follow the currents. You follow those stepping stones of all the islands up and around, and the currents take you there, and you follow the birds like the Vikings did. Right. When you see seabirds, you know you're not far away from land. Right. And then, of course, you have Polaris, the North Star, which was an incredible navigational tool for free sextant travelers before they mastered longitude and latitude. You're just going by landmark animals and also the North Star, yeah. and that's how they got here. Yeah, it's fascinating to read about that. I found a book uh, written by some of the early conquistador travelers. Uh, it was like a collection of their stories, and they're discussing, you know, arguing how the Americans, Americas could have been populated. The first few chapters are about that, and they describe, you know, different techniques. But that's fascinating to hear somebody cross the Atlantic in a bathtub. I never heard that. I thought you were going to mention maybe Thor Heyerdahl, who took the, oh, yeah. the Polynesian raft across the Pacific. So, you know, it's not just a Eurocentric thing we're discussing here. It happened down in South America and potentially, you know, Central and the West Coast of North America. You know, Polynesian cultures, Asian cultures had that equal potential to travel across that ocean, and they did. I mean, it seems like a lot of the uh, Peruvian artifacts that are found have these kind of Japanese or East Asian similarities, right? I mean, even the Olmec heads kind of have a Polynesian or African look to them. Yeah, sure. And in the case of Thor Heyerdahl, he sailed the Contiki boat made from materials and drafts from the plans of the Incan sailors who were using reeds to build their boats. He constructed it tirelessly to the detail to imitate exactly how they built it. And him and his crew, sure enough, sailed from Ecuador to the Galapagos Islands and then caught the trade winds right on over to French Polynesia, to Tahiti, proving that the South America route was very feasible and plausible. Mm. Similarly, the other expedition Thor Heyerdahl did, which I think is equally telling and as, as adventurous, was called the Raw Expedition. And that's when they built the longboat of the Egyptians, wow. sailed through the Mediterranean, and then across the Atlantic to Brazil. And so you mentioned earlier about the Roman coins there and other artifacts from the Mediterranean region found all around the uh, coastline of the Americas. Yeah. So, yeah, that's cultural diffusionism. That is more travel than barrier. Right. Right. And I think this is really what makes sense when you look at all of this evidence that these, you know, Ivy Tower scholars are ignoring 
And, you know, someone like yourself has much more experience uh, with the actual world than the average professor who rarely leaves their uh, academic setting, I imagine. But when it comes to the audience, the listeners who might be excited uh, about this notion of traveling to some of these places, as we start to wrap this conversation up, uh, you've been to many places around the world, seven continents, in fact. I'm not going to ask you what your favorite place to travel to or anything like that was, but when it comes to advice or maybe, you know, this notion of, oh, other maybe third world countries being dangerous, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that whole, maybe, I don't know if it's a stigma because I haven't left America myself, but can you speak to like this propaganda that we receive as Americans or people in the West about the other parts of the world and your experience in those parts of the world that might seem dodgy to maybe someone who's never been or known anyone from those parts of the world. Sure. Yeah. Well, my very first book is called World Stompers, a global travel manifesto, and it's still in print and people still pick it up and say, Hey, that's a great book. It motivated me to go travel around the world. And indeed, I wrote it while I was traveling around the world. There it is in the catalog in the back of Beyond Esoteric. And that's a handbook, how other people can travel around the world. And then, of course, I did my Sacred Places series of guidebooks to give you some cool locations to go visit. Uh, And the Esoteric series of all the weird and wonderful things you can also discover out on the road. Because travel to me was the most informative and educational experience I had. Got double majors in college. And my three years traveling outside of America was far more eye-opening and street smart worthy than my five years in college. And it, I could build my travel writing career and book publishing business on that information, that knowledge. So travel is absolutely, has been vital to my growth and career trajectory, uh, given me countless places that I could reflect on. And of course, I'm always interested in the mystery of the place. And that's what I'm always seeking out. So if people want to check out my books, and I also publish a half a dozen other authors at cccpublishing.com. That's a good place to start. Cool. And you'll see my books there and any books that are ordered off of that website, go through my office and then I can sign copies for people typically like that. Uh, if you want to know about my conference schedule or other projects that I'm working on, bradolson.com, L-S-E-N, bradolson, one word.com. And then you can uh, hopefully catch up with me at one of these great conferences that I'll be speaking at in 2024. I got one more of the year this weekend in Menlo Park, California. So I'm heading there this weekend and then doing an early family visit. Half of my family is out in California. So it'll be great to see everybody and do my last talk of the year and have some books there to sell like I do at all the conferences. And I'm a people person. I sit at my table and talk to anybody that comes over and I like it. I learn a lot from it. And people will send me valuable information all the time. And it's just a never ending search. I'm sure you feel the same way. You peel one layer of the onion and it just opens up all these other questions to keep going deeper and deeper. And uh, 
the more you know, the better you get. Knowledge is truly power. And the smarter you get, the easier life becomes too, in many ways. You kind of see how things go and how to keep yourself safe, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Yeah, well said and great advice. And yeah, I hope to meet you at the conference, a conference, maybe on the East Coast. I'll keep my eyes on the schedule. But Brad, this has been great as usual. Our last conversation was great as well. And folks, you can go to bradolson.com, check out his full catalog of books available, and cpublishing.com, where not only your books are available, but you, the book you mentioned earlier by Mr. Jocko, and uh, also an author who I have one of his books, uh, Leo Zagami. I would hope to get him on the show at some point in time. Maybe you could help facilitate that connection. But uh, Brad, this, oh, sure. is, this has been great. I really appreciate it. And uh Yeah, I look forward to what comes next. And until next time, folks listening, immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are in the outro of this very special episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I was not kidding around in the beginning of this conversation when I said Brad Olson is an inspirational author in my life. His series of books, Modern Esoteric, Future Esoteric, and Beyond Esoteric, were instrumental for me at a young age. While others were watching Zeitgeist, I was diving into those three books and really impressing a lot of my friends who had trouble finding this kind of information at that time on the internet. It was available, it was there, but it wasn't as reliable in the sense that uh, you couldn't refer to it uh, the same way you could a book, right? A book, you know, you put it on the shelf, you know it's not going to change, the pages aren't going to be deleted or edited, same is not true with the internet, hence Chris Knowles's uh, secret shredder project that we talked about on the secret vault episode him and I did. So uh, yeah, lots of great reasons to sign up for the Patreon or the Substack. That is one of them. Brad's books, again, are instrumental. And I've done uh, old previous episodes where I've broken down some of the books that were uh instrumental in my life and i'm sure that has come up in that episode uh, library of the mystagogue was the title of that series and those shows are available on the patreon but anyways uh, brad's a great guy go to bradolson.com to check out all his books and uh yeah not much else to say for that uh, uh on that note Brad's been on the show before. Go back and listen to the previous episode. And if you sign up for the Patreon or the Substack, I'm going to be having the great Homie Romy with me to break down some of the stranger aspects of Brad's book, Beyond Esoteric. And uh, you don't want to miss that. So sign up on the Patreon or the Substack to hear the full extended episode of this very awesome my Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast episode. I feel like I've been a little repetitive, but I'm getting into the flow. I'm getting working the kinks out. Uh, thank you to everybody who signed up on the Patreon to support. Thank you for everybody who's been 
listening to the show, all of our new listeners. Thank you for being here. Uh, if you want to experience the show ad-free, of course, sign up on Patreon or Substack. Uh, that's the end of my spiel. If you still want to support the show, but that's too much to ask, you can always send us a one-time donation at Mystic Mark on PayPal or uh, Venmo. We also take um, other pay services. You just send me a, a direct message if those aren't your thing, Venmo or PayPal. But that's the easiest way for me. Venmo particularly, they take the least amount of money uh, I think PayPal and Venmo are owned by the same company. But either way, lots of great ways to support the show. If that's too much to ask, you can always leave us a rating and review. I encourage five-star ratings, and those are the sh ratings that we will be reading on the show. So leave us a five-star rating, and I will read it on the show. Send me a message on Telegram. You can leave me a voice message in our Telegram the Telegram app is really cool if you haven't downloaded it already. There's a link in the description to join our exclusive Telegram group. Tons of fans of the show are in there chatting, sharing links, sharing memes and things like that. So it's a great little community. If you like Discord, you'll probably like our Telegram. I've considered making a Discord. We might, if I get more people... Uh, reaching out saying that they would like that kind of thing. So if Discord is your thing, let me know, and I'll reconsider uh, creating a Discord for the show because we had one in the past, and it was just it just took too much space on my computer f to justify having it. And really, we didn't have anybody in the Discord back then, but the show's grown considerably, so I'm sure we can at least get a couple hundred people in there so if Discord is your thing, let me know, and I'll make a server for the podcast. Uh, I know the Bledsoe Said So podcast has one. So, yeah, big shout-out to all of the people who have left a five-star rating and review, everybody who participates on social media and follows me on Instagram, at MyFamilyThinksI'mCrazy. That helps. I've been getting less likes on my posts lately and i don't know if it's instagram shadow banning me or i'm just not posting frequently enough to stay in people's algorithms but yeah go and show me some love on instagram we used to get at least 100 likes per post and lately we've gotten 20 or 30 so i know that doesn't uh that doesn't reflect the listenership of the show which has only increased since we've begun uh it's increased tenfold we're listening, uh, we have about ten to 30,000 listeners on an average episode, and that is just incredible. So if we could get, you know, at least 10% of that on Patreon, that would be equally incredible and would change my life, would make the show better. I'd be able to upgrade all my equipment, I'd be able to put out more content, and I would be able to probably stream live and go out and do in-person interviews, things like that. So if you want to see me reach that goal, sign up on the Patreon. Our goal is 250 supporters. Patreon will tell you we have that many, but the truth is about 40 or so of those people are only on the free tier, which doesn't really give them anything. It just kind of keeps you in the loop, so to speak. You don't get access to any of the posts, but you do get notified when we post, so... And I think when your card declines, you're automatically uh, put on the free tier. So 
Just go and double check if you did support the show in the past. Make sure your credit card didn't decline accidentally. And uh, yeah, if you did decline or if you decided not to, to stick with us, reconsider for $5 a month. I've got so much more content on there than I did just a few months ago. Uh, I've really been focusing on it. And yeah, the, the numbers have grown. We When I first started this push, we were at 150 supporters, and now we're at about 210. So 60 of you amazing people have signed up. And out of the tens of thousands of people that listen to the show, I mean, that's still not that much. So please, you right now listening to me all the way at the end of this episode, you're still tuned in. You must love the podcast. So go that extra step further for just $5 a month and sign up on the Patreon right now. The link is in the description. Big shout out to our sponsors, the Hit Kit, the number one way to get lit. Use promo code CRAZY to save at checkout. Save, keep, safe, whatever you're smoking on. Blunts, joints, spliffs, and of course, reharmonize and revitalize your aura your energy field with some organite isaac lazel make some really awesome custom-made organite right out of the great state of oregon he has a company called oregonite go and check them out on instagram it's spelled just like the state plus ite at the end oregon.ite and yeah if you use promo code mftic you save 10 percent off at checkout and i get a little kickback so it's a great way to support the show and we've already done really well. I've got like 80 bucks. So, you know, what's uh, 60 bucks? What's what's 60 bucks is 10% of, oh, I'm going to look like a big fool right now. Is it 600? I hope it's 600. Otherwise, I look like a big fool. But math is not my strong suit. But either way, thanks to everybody who has picked up some Organite from Isaac. And, uh, yeah, this might be the last episode before the holidays so happy holidays uh whether you celebrate christmas merry christmas if you celebrate kwanzaa happy kwanzaa if you celebrated hanukkah well i hope you had a happy hanukkah i don't know if it's over or not yet um and muslims i don't know what you guys celebrate this time of year uh but either way hope you have a great uh rest of your year and there will be an episode out next week two episodes out in fact and uh, yeah, for the Patreon supporters, they're already listening to that right now. They got that episode yesterday. So uh, all the more reason to sign up there. And uh, yeah, thanks, folks. Take it easy and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. MFTIC. Yeah. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages hijacking Perception tricking the population with holographic projections. We see through it. The system is unraveling. I'm astral traveling to the library of the Vatican on a sacred journey. I embark with the squad for rough, spitting truth like Mark on the pod. Gotta know the facts, never hold back. Cause 
I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade I awoke in a deep underground military base Zero recollection of how I got to this place Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders Must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages A lion with the eagle head Monkeys with reptilian bases Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft My getaway I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out Robin for his plasma gun Hop in the ship Take the controls They highly intuitive I figure it out easily Lift off Accelerate through a tunnel Until I see the light Fly into the sky Get flanked by six F-35s Gotta know the facts Never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade Did you know using your browser in incognito mode doesn't actually protect your privacy? Take back your privacy with IPVanish VPN. Just one tap and all your data, passwords, communications, browsing history, and more will be instantly protected. IPVanish makes you virtually invisible online. Use IPVanish on all your devices, anytime you go online at home and especially on public Wi-Fi. Get IPVanish now for 70% off a yearly plan with this exclusive offer at IPVanish.com audio.